Good morning. How is everyone? Fantastic, great, not so great. Well, I, that uh, Sydney was sharing just moved me to think about that happening here with kids. You hear about, the, it just moves me tremendously. And I am very thankful for our church and for our fellowship. The last four Sundays we've had uh, the pastors sharing. I'm so thankful for those guys. They love the word. They're diligent, godly men. And just, I could just come and soak it in for a while. So uh, I'm very thankful for that. I'm thankful also, yesterday we were, uh, Charlotte was praying about just thankful for the prayer that goes on in our church. And there is a consistent prayer meeting on Saturday morning, but there's also other prayer meetings that are now consistent. And I believe that that is the wheelhouse, the furnace of what God's doing. We are a praying church. And Jesus said, my house should be called a house of prayer. So if you have prayers, we have these bowls up here, one is for prayers, one is for praise. You just put your things in there, come up after, fill out the thing on the back of the chair. We will pray for you at least, well, right away, be sent out to probably a total of about 40 people, and you'll be prayed for. And then uh, you'll be prayed for about every month, that prayer request. So we've had them from the beginning of the year. I think we're at about, right now, about 1,000 prayer requests have come in over the year that we're praying for. So such positive things that the Lord's doing. So with that, um, I can't believe it's already September. And uh, anyway, would you stand? We're going to do what we always do and get in the Word of God. If you're new, welcome to Calvary. Welcome to our time right now in the Word of God. I'm going to be reading from the New King James Version of the Bible. I want to read the passage, the main passage. And this passage here, Mark 10, 32 through 52, that we're going to be be looking at the disciple and the desire to become great. We're going to look at that, and we're going to ask you to read along in your device or whatever that is. The more we can take in the Word of God, the more senses we give to the Word of God. The Bible says it's alive and powerful. It's not like any other book. Every time we read it, God speaks. Every time we hear it, that's God speaking to us. So to, to follow along in your, uh, in your Bible with me as we go through the text, but then any other verses that I have, I'll put up on the screen uh, people have told me that I kind of speed read and uh, speed quote, so bear with me, but I'll have my notes. If you want them, just email me. Amen? So Mark chapter 10, verse 32. Now they're on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was going before them, and they were amazed. And as they followed, they were afraid. Then he took the twelve aside again and began to tell them the things that would happen to him. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and scourge him and spit on him and kill him. And the third day he will rise again. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for, to do for you? They said to him, Grant us that we may sit one on your right hand and the other on your left hand in your glory. But Jesus said to them, you do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and, to be, ba and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They said to him, we are able. So Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink the cup that I drink. And with the baptism I am baptized with, you will be baptized. But... 
to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared. But Jesus called them who's prepared. And when Jesus, and when the ten heard it, they, they began to be greatly displeased with James and John. You getting the vibe? <laughs> but Jesus called them to himself and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever of you desire to be first shall be slave. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That verse 45 is really the key verse of the whole gospel. Responsive reading, Psalm 119. I'll read verse 57, the odd verses. If you would join together in reading the second, the 58 and the even verses, Psalm 119 is all about the word of God. So here we go. You are my portion, O Lord. I have said that I would keep your words. I thought about my ways and turned my feet to your testimonies. The cords of the wicked have bound me, but I have not forgotten your law. I am a companion of all who fear you and of those who keep your precepts. Let's pray. So, Lord, we do. That's our prayer. Teach us your statutes. Give to us, Lord, this morning your word. We're hungry. You said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. I ask, Lord, that the things I prepared, you'd help me to communicate your heart to your people from your word. That you'd bless these things, break them fresh, feed us. Bless, Lord, as we are thinking through stuff this morning, as the Holy Spirit is teaching us and guiding us and convicting us. Grant us ears to hear and a heart to humble ourselves under your mighty word that you might do the things you want to do. Teach us, Lord, what we don't know. Give us, Lord, what we need, what we do not have. And I pray you'd make us, Lord, what we are not yet. Work in us this morning through your word, in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. You can be seated. So that, that my title is The Disciple and Desire for Greatness. To desire to become great is a good thing. When? The true measure of greatness is our guide. Then it's a good thing. The desire to make something of our lives is God-given. God created us for a reason, for a purpose. First and foremost, everything must flow into know Him, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom He has sent. That's bottom line, that's root deep. That Jesus said, this is eternal life. Nothing less than that. To know God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. That is greatness. That is the epitome of a great life. Eternal life is the quality of life that is only possible by being in right relationship with God. How? It's through repentance towards God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. It's the testimony that 1 John talks about when he says, the testimony that God has given us eternal life 
And this life is in his son. He who has the son has life. He who does not have life does not, he does not have the son does not have life. We cannot know anything about this whole thing of greatness. What did God plan? What, did he, what was his purpose? It is so great. It is so vast. He created us like nothing, no, no other of his creation to know him, to walk with him, to enjoy his fellowship, to receive of him this thing called eternal life. Now in Mark, going back in our study through Mark, Jesus put it this way. In verse 34 of chapter 8, when he, when he had called the people to himself and his disciples also, so that everyone that was following, he said to them, whoever desires to come after me. See, that's the first thing. Desire to become great, yes, but the desire to come out. Whoever desires to come after me, let him, here it is, deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life, notice, for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what profit, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? And let me say, answer that to the unregenerate a lot. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him, the Son of Man, also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. There are two people, two sets of people. Those who know God and the Lord Jesus Christ and those who don't. To those who know him, this greatness of God is what eternal life is all about. So it's repentance, it's faith, and then it's following. That's life. That's eternal life. Repentance toward God, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and then follow Jesus. And that, uh, what Jesus is telling us there, is not easy. It goes against the grain of our selfishness. To deny self, to take up the cross, which is to crucify this life, apart from God, and to follow him. So Jesus said, notice verse 43, yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. He's talking directly to the disciples. This is what's to be going on. And whoever desires to be first shall be slave. For the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and give his life a ransom for many, the greatest sacrifice we ever know of, will ever know of. Now, it says, among you. The thought came to me, when in the presence of Jesus, except to the eyes of the blind and to the heart of the foolish, there is no question as to who is the greatest. If we're walking around with Jesus, there's no question as to who's the greatest. Would you say amen? amen? He is. He is our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's no question about that. But when we are in the presence of one another, what happens? These disciples then and so with us now. The desire to become great is to be greater than, put a name, 
than so-and-so and so-and-so. These things run along in our fallen nature to measure ourselves by ourselves and to compare ourselves by ourselves. It's a prevalent folly in seeking greatness and desiring to become great. So we are wise to answer this question in the presence of Jesus, to keep our hearts in the right place among us, that he is the one we're looking to as the example. So Jesus gave his life to answer this question to become great. What does that mean? What does that look like? He gave his life to show us. So there are three things I outlined if it helps. We have the enemy of greatness. We have the example of greatness. And we have the essence of greatness in the life of Jesus and through his words. The enemy of greatness, the example of greatness, and the essence of greatness. The enemy of greatness is simply this, glorying in self. That's the enemy of greatness. The opposite of greatness as far as God has taught us. And as we know in our hearts in knowing Jesus Christ. So as they're on the road going to Jerusalem and Jesus was going before them. And they were amazed. So here's a wanted man, Jesus. He's in the last six months. He's heading to Jerusalem. He knows what's coming. He's a wanted man. And yet he's in front and he's leading them, as he always does. He's walking to Jerusalem with full knowledge of what's about to happen. He's determined to do God's will, knowing the cost. To be obedient to the Father, knowing what that meant. So the atmosphere is getting heavier. This sense of impending trouble that Jesus has been talking about is starting to weigh on him, not only him, but also his disciples. They were afraid. They were fearful. What's going to happen to us? What does all this mean now that we're going, as Jesus, you said it, this is the third time. It says they were afraid again. So he again took them aside. You know, the Bible says God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. But that is not going to happen without Jesus in our presence. He is the one. First John says there's no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear. I'm telling you what I believe is going on here. Jesus leading them. They're following. And they're, in, they're glad that they're with him. <laughs> they understand what's going on. They've seen him operating for two and a half years. They understand his greatness, his power, his words. Now he said he's going to Jerusalem. They're going to crucify me. They're going to spit on me. They're going to kill me. So they go, I don't know what this means. I don't know what's happening here. Is he impending? And they're following him. Very thankful to be with him. Very willing at this point to be with him. And I'm telling you, there's nothing that takes care of fear like the love of Jesus Christ walking in our lives. Perfect love casts out fear. We're not made complete without that perfect love of God. That's so great. Talk about to become great. What is greater than the love of God? in your life and in my life. I was reading about a great preacher who said, 
at the end of his life said, you know, I just wish I had spent more time talking about the love of God. It's said of John the Apostle that at the end of his life, 90 plus years old, got the book of Revelation, he's in the, some believe in the church at Ephesus. He was so frail, he couldn't get around, they had to carry him. And as they carried him in, he'd say, beloved, love one another. Beloved, love one another. That's what surfaces in matters of the heart. And the change that God wants to do is that his perfect love casts out fear. He leads us in paths of righteousness. So this third time, we also saw in Mark chapter 8 and chapter 9, Jesus predicts his suffering, his death, but he never does that without also talking about his resurrection. I will rise again the third day. The magnitude about what has happened is not yet sunk in, nor will it sink in as they watch it. And then James and John, I think you got to love these guys. The sons of Zebedee came to him saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. <laughs> I chuckle a little bit because we don't necessarily verbally ask it, but it lurks in the heart. Would you do this for us? He said, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, grant us that we may sit, one on your right hand and the other on your left, in your glory. Now, the problem is this. The focus really isn't on Jesus' glory, it's on their own. You see, it's only as it pertains to them, and as it pertains to their greatness, or I might say, as it pertains to my greatness, my glory, my exaltation. That is a nate in the sinful fallen nation. Would you do this for me, Jesus? It's funny, in Matthew... We read this, then mother, the mother of Zebedee's sons, Salome, came to him with her sons, kneeling down and asking something from him. And he said to, the, to her, what do you wish? She said to him, ah, my boys, my boys, grant that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right hand and the other on your left hand in your kingdom. She's a good Jewish mother. <laughs> She's got the heart of a mom. So here we have your right hand, the place of highest honor, your left is second so the place of highest honor and highest uh, authority in your kingdom, in your glory. They're asking me number one and number two. Thing one and thing two, as Dr. Seuss would put it. So evidently they had this idea, and they actually thought that it might be worth asking. Can we be number two and number one and two in your uh, in your administration. Now, I think their request is noble. I think in the heart of all of us, we want to be as close as we can to Jesus. And we want to be doing the best we can for Jesus. And we want to be known as being Jesus lovers and Jesus followers, for sure. And the other disciples were also thinking the same thing. And so we read in verse 41, and when they 10 heard it, they began to be greatly displeased with James and John. So they're vying for the same notoriety. They just didn't ask it. Now, let me ask you a question that is really rhetorical. 
Does this kind of self-centered thinking not lurk in your heart? Does it not tend to rise up at times when you're feeling insecure as well as others? Who am I? Wait a second. Hold on a minute. I remember Pastor Wayne Taylor of Calvary Fellowship that I was with, with him about five or six years, and I was one of his elders. And he told me one time, he said, whenever he's appointing elders, God was always working the hearts of those who were not asked as well as those who are. So I think we can find encouragement when we're overlooked, when we're not chosen, we don't make the cut. Let me say to you, God is not overlooking us. He's working in us. What real greatness means. It's like he said to Jeremiah, who said, I, I, I don't know about this. I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord. Thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. Whatever it is you're going through, whatever these things that are rising up along these lines, know this, God has a plan. God has a purpose for your life. God's working in you to will and do what pleases him. And oftentimes, those kinds of things, only God can cause all things to work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And that's what he does. He does that. He works in us. What might seem demeaning, what might seem missing, what might seem lacking is God working in our lives to understand that in his sight, in his eyes, in his heart, you are valuable, precious, and great. He loves you. He's working in you. He's causing these things to work. Can you imagine what heaven would be like <laughs> if we're, once we get there, we're vying for the, we're jockeying for superiority and these kinds of things. It wouldn't be paradise at all, I'll tell you that. It'd be like living here. Who wants to stay here? <laughs> we are admonished in the Bible to avoid being driven by self-promotion. Watch out. It's not good to eat much honey, so to seek one's own glory is not glory. Let another man praise you and not your own mouth. Do you seek great things, to Jeremiah, do you think great things for yourself? Do not seek them. Lay that aside. Kill it before it kills you. We are told that selfish ambition is a work of the flesh in contrast to the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians, now the works of the flesh are evident, which are hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions. All these things talk about relationship. And what happens? Verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. And then defined, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. He writes, against such there is no law and those who have who are Christ, have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. Kill it. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited. Let us not provoke one another. Let us not envy one another. Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, washed the defeat of his betrayer. 
Friends, that's greatness. He's going to the cross. It says in John, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father. Having loved his own or in the world, he loved them to the end. So this, John's giving a sort of prerequisite, a preamble to what he saw, what happened to him. And supper being ended, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray him, Simon's son to betray him, Jesus knowing that the Father, you see, there's something that's different when we have God in view and God have God in focus. And Jesus knew what was coming, but he knew he's going to the Father. He rose from supper, laid aside his garment, took a towel and girded himself. And then we read in John 13, 5, after that he poured water into a basin, began to wash the disciples' feet, to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Can you imagine? Just for a moment to put yourself in that room. To do what was the last thing his disciples were thinking Jesus should be doing. That's lowly. And yet Jesus did it as an example. He came to Simon Peter. You got to love Peter, don't you? He comes to Simon Peter. He's going around. I don't know what number he was, but one or two maybe. Comes to Simon Peter. Lord, are you washing my feet? No way. I mean, you can wash those other ones because they don't get it, but I get it. Are you washing my feet? Jesus answered to him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but you will. What a great word to, Jesus, to Peter. But you will know after this. You'll understand what's going on in this upper room. You'll understand what love is and what servanthood is and what greatness is. So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments, sat down again, he said, do you know what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Now, I've never been in the foot washing ceremony. If I was to say, you're not washing my feet. I mean, I would just naturally, I don't even like people to, you know, massage my back. But I've heard, and some of you have experienced that I know, these foot wash, and it's very humbling. Imagine yourself sitting as Jesus kneels before you and begins to wash your feet. God incarnate. God about to be crucified. And on that night, this was the beginning of them beginning to ask, what does that mean? How does that work? He said, you don't only get now, but you will. You'll understand it after the cross. I've given you an example, he said in verse 15, that you should do as I have done to you. Most assured I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. <laughs> That's always the case as far as God's word. If you know these things, bless you if you do them. So the, the enemy of greatness is the glorying of self. The example of greatness is the glory of the servant, Jesus. He said, you do not know what you ask. 
Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism with which I am, that I am baptized with? They said to him, we are able. Now that was a flippant response. Oh yeah, we're able, no problem. He said, you'll indeed drink the cup that I drink and with the baptism I am baptized with, you will be baptized. So Jesus now goes on, is working in their hearts. How they would look at servanthood. How they would look at being great. How they would look at these places of position before God. You don't know what you're asking. And they, well, they didn't. The cup of baptism, it speaks of a submersion, a partaker of suffering and shame, of being overwhelmed by disaster. The word itself. He said, you will indeed. And James and John would suffer would be baptized in suffering and shame. It would happen for them in God's timing and in God's doing. Because right now, that wasn't happening. Now, what was the difference maker for them? It was not the Mount of Transfiguration. Where they saw his glory, Moses and Elijah there, oh, let's make you know, three temples right here. We're going to stay right here. Let's, let's, man, this is glorious. That didn't do it. Do you know what did it? The resurrection. They saw all he went through and realized that all that he did was the heart of God to them. And now he's risen from the dead and we now know the heart of God. Radically changed their lives. Had Jesus not risen from the dead, there'd be no chance of any kind of this kind of greatness. Had Jesus not risen from the dead, there's no, no possibility of mercy and grace. Had Jesus not risen from the dead, we are all most to be pitied, and we'd be living in a dog-eat-dog life without any hope of a change. But oh, to become great is to come to know what the heart of God is to me, to you. He's the servant, the suffering servant of Isaiah chapter 53. Do you know that all the disciples died horrible deaths? You will be. You'll, you, you will be. It's going to happen. They, could, they went through that because they loved God. They loved Jesus. And I believe if God calls us into some kind of martyrdom, his grace will be sufficient to take us through that in glorifying him. Matthew was murdered in Ethiopia, killed with an axe. Mark was dragged through the streets of the ancient city of Alexandria until he was dead. Luke hung to death in Greece. James beheaded in Jerusalem. Philip stoned to death. Bartholomew flayed alive, skinned alive. Jude shot through with arrows until he died. Andrew tied to a cross and left to die a slow, painful death. Barnabas stoned to death. Paul, after all he had already suffered, beheaded. Thomas ran through with a lance. And Peter was crucified upside down because he didn't feel himself worthy to be crucified in the same manner. People willingly die for what they think is true. But listen, no one dies for what they know is a lie. They did experience 
the suffering. They did experience the same things in a different manner, but the same dying because in their hearts was the love of God for a fallen, broken world. They didn't strike back, even as Jesus didn't. So Jesus said, but to sit on my right hand and my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared. This is an intriguing statement to me. Jesus leaving this a question yet to be answered. Somehow, this is not part of Jesus' jurisdiction. These things are, are ordained. They are bestowed selectively, not, ran, not arbitrarily, not randomly. It's set, it, whoever, whoever it is, but Jesus said, it's not my jurisdiction. That's intriguing to me. But I would say, there's a greatness yet to be revealed when Jesus will come to reward and to reign. There's coming some kind of rewards and positions and places that we read about in many parts of the Bible. But listen, God's rewards are based on our faithfulness to what he's given us to steward. Think about that a moment. We will be rewarded according to our faithfulness to what God has given to us as responsibilities. Our position in the kingdom will be according to the faithfulness, our faithfulness in the matters of the kingdom. So this is what I would say. In fact, this, this paradigm is what the king's men and women at war, which are monthly meetings, came from for me. It goes like this. Sanctify the secular by surrendering them to God's sacred purposes in your life. Sanctify your relationships as a responsibility before God. Sanctify your vocation as a responsibility to God. Whatever you do, do all things for the glory of God. Sanctify your skills. Sanctify your talents. Bringing them, surrendering them to God for the sacred work he's doing in and through your life. All of a sudden, everything becomes kingdom matters. There are some things that need to go. They're not a part. They can't be sanctified. They need to be removed. But many of the things that we do, that we have been given, the ways that God has created us, God wants to take those things. He wants to sanctify them in your life and in my life. He wants to surrender them to him for his sacred purposes in making a difference in the world, in people's lives, for the kingdom of God. Your gifts and your goods, sanctify them to God. He will be rewarding according to our faithfulness. And that's the truth. And that's yet to come. The example of greatness is the glory of the servant. And Jesus spoke about these things. They're written in the epistles. But notice verse 42. But Jesus called them to himself, said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles 
lord it over them. They taskmaster it. They use their authority as, I'm over you. And that attitude prevails in the heart of the unbelieving authorities, as we know very well through the pandemic. He says, yet it shall not be so among you. Whoever desires to be great, he says there, shall be your servant, shall be your slave. So he rebukes, really gently rebukes their worldly concepts of, great, of greatness, of power, of position. And we need that straightened out continuously. Worldly achievements and successes are not prerequisites for becoming great in God's kingdom. I think we're going to be very surprised at the people we see and the positions God gives them. Because before God, their hearts are great. Do not love the world, brothers and sisters, or the things that are in the world. For all that is in the world is not of God. This worldly attitude, worldly possessions, worldly position, worldly passions, says don't love those. Let them go because that's not going to last. But he who does the will of God will endure forever. And make doing the will of God your first and primary focus and responsibility, and you will never regret it. What would God have me to do with these things? How would God have me to live? For the, even the Son of Man did not come to, serve but, to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. David Guzik said, humble service is the greatest prerequisite to greatness with God. The servant is Jesus. We don't have time this morning, but I would encourage you to read Isaiah chapter 52, the end of it. I'll put this up there. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. I just, that just sort of struck me as I was reading through for this study. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He's going to deal with this thing wisely. He's going to do the things that are right. He's prudently. And then you read Isaiah, the rest of 52 and 53, and you see what he did prudently. It's the opposite of what we, could, we would consider prudence. He was despised and rejected. He was despised. He was wounded. He was bruised. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. He was taken from prison and from judgment. He was cut off from the land of the living. This is all in Isaiah 53, prophetic of the cross. And there it's a, a, a hideous death. He was cut off from the land of the living. Talking about crucifixion. In, the, in that passage in chapter 52 at the end, his visage was so marred more than any man, beginning of 53 rather, he was beaten so mercilessly you couldn't even recognize him as a human being. That's prudence? Oh, you bet it is. It's God. The greatness of God. The love of God. The mercy of God. Through him. So we understand that this greatness is the greatness of the glory of the servant. My servant. And then at the end of chapter 53, he says this. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He was put, 
He, put it, he has put him to grief. When he, you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. When he shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied by his knowledge. Here it is. My righteous servant shall justify many for he shall bear their iniquities. That's greatness. Greatness is living a crucified life of sacrificial love. And so Jesus said the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. That's the measure of greatness. To live a, sac a crucified life of sacrificial love. And this ransom, this paid, was a debt paid in full. Finally, in closing, the essence of greatness is the mercy of the Son. God's mercy. So I think this whole picture is added now by Mark in chapter 10, verse 46, if you go to your Bibles. Now they came to Jericho. As he went out of Jericho with his disciples, a great multitude, blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, sat by the road begging. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Then many warned him to be quiet. Don't you talk. Jesus doesn't want you. You're going to get yourself in trouble. They warned him be quiet. And not so much as you, but they're, they're they don't want to hear it. But he cried it all the more. Son of David, have mercy on me. Have you cried to the Lord like that? In your desperate situations? Have mercy, God. See, it's the mercy of God that is so great and so vast and so immeasurable. You see, mercy is the outward manifestation of pity. It has two sides to it. It assumes need on the part of the one who receives it, and certainly God knows that. And, it, and it, then it has the, the resources adequate to meet the need on the part of the one who shows it, God. Have mercy on me. Don't give me what I deserve. Would you give me the grace of God is getting what we don't deserve? He said, have mercy on me. Lord, would you, would you save me from this blind life? You know, a scripture passage is one of my, I don't know if I have a life verse, but this is one of them I think of often, where David said in 2 Samuel, you have given me the shield of your salvation. Your gentleness has made me great. So gentle and so kind and so compassionate and so merciful. That's the essence of greatness. Your great is your mercy toward me. So Jesus stood still and commanded him to be called. Then they called the blind man, saying to him, Be of good cheer. He's calling you. So it goes from, You better not be talking anymore. We're tired of hearing you, to, Well, I'll say, Okay, he said it. Here we come. And throwing aside his garment, he rose and came to you. Now, this coat was significant for a beggar, much more so with a blind beggar. But he rised up and said, I don't need that coat anymore. And if I do need it, I'll be able to see so I can find it. He read his faith. He said, oh, and then so Jesus said to him, same exact question that he asked the disciples. What do you want me to do for you? The question is, do we understand how desperately we need God in our lives? Do we understand 
that really what we want and need most desperately is his mercy, is his love, is his ministry to us individually, and through which he then sets the course in understanding true greatness, what that looks like and what that means. And so here's this blind beggar. Jesus answered, what do you want me to do for you? He said, that I may receive my sight. Then Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus on the road. That's the picture of what happens when we meet Jesus in all of his greatness, in all of his goodness, in all of his mercy. Our eyes are open, and we get it. We understand it. So may the Lord. You see, there's this greatness that's yet to be revealed when Jesus will come to reward and reign. Can I have the worship team come on out? But there is this greatness already revealed when Jesus came to redeem us from our sin. And then what I would call to right the ship of our lives, to right us. What it means to really know God, to walk with God, to understand greatness as we understand and know God. Would you stand with me? Let's close with this song and I'll come up and pray us closed. Mm-hmm.